Good day to all of our investors and general listeners. This is the Rudd Commentary. My name is Josh Rudd, and I'll be your host on this presentation today. And with me today is Jack Herr, our Capital Markets Associate. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Hey, Josh. For our new listeners who may not be familiar with our firm, the Rudd Company is a wealth management firm headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. We manage investments for clients across the country and specialize in personal investment management, retirement planning, and the setup and management of employer retirement plans. Jack, May has been quite a, a volatile month. Yeah, we've seen a lot of rotation out of some certain sectors and into others. How about crypto? Everyone's favorite asset. That's been a bumpy road for, for crypto over the last month as well. We have seen that asset move quite a bit, and I think that pretty much throws out the idea of it being a, a stable store of value, huh, Jack? Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing. Well, Jack, I think all of our listeners are looking forward to hearing your update, especially in light of this volatile month. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is the economy and some of the data the market has been tracking over the last month or so. First one being unemployment. We've seen job claims month to month actually decrease now for three or four straight months, which is good. And the market has taken that pretty well. So these claims are now at new pandemic lows. But of course, we're still seeing unemployment above where it was just a year ago before the pandemic started. So that's something we'll continue to monitor. And hopefully we stay on that track of decreasing jobless claims here into the summer. So is it fair to say some people are going back to work? Yeah, Josh, you led me right into my next point here. And, and that's that there's a lot of people that aren't going back to work. We still have these higher unemployment benefits in the economy and in some sectors like the restaurant industry and other industries with lower paying jobs. We're seeing people actually stay on the unemployment benefits and not electing to go back to work because they're making more uh, sitting on their couch and, and staying at home. How do you feel about that, Josh? Well, no, I think you hit the nail on the head with a lot of the enhanced benefits right now. You know, those have been pretty consistent uh, since the pandemic. It's very hard to justify for a lot of folks going back to work when they can make just as much staying at home, especially if they have any concerns, still lingering concerned over the safety of that work environment, or, or really just they've kind of stepped into a new normal, whether that's working from home and maybe they just don't want to go into the office. Right. Hopefully we'll see those unemployment benefits start to wane here into the summer and, and we can get back a little quicker than we have been. The second thing that I want to talk about, and this, this is one we've been talking about pretty much every podcast over the last six months, and that's inflation. The market is finally realizing that it's here. We saw the April CPI index, which measures all prices across the economy, is also the index that the Fed tracks month to month. We saw the April CPI index come in well ahead of expectations. We expected around a 2% increase in prices, and we actually saw 6% increase, so 4% above expectations there. Josh, we've been talking a lot over the last year about how there's more money in the system with all the government fiscal stimulus and how the money supply has grown. But one thing that I think is being overlooked, at least in these numbers, is the supply chain impact. We've seen all this excess demand as the economy's come back and as states have reopened. And we've also seen some shortages in supply. For example, we've, we've seen lumber prices over the last three months really spike up due to excess demand, people working on their houses, but also, you know, we've seen some shortages in supply with the fires on the West Coast. Well, the supply chain issues have really been problematic for this environment, too. You were talking about wages and those lower-priced jobs or lower-paying jobs just really struggling 
and business owners struggling to attract workers, which of course has compounded the supply issue. It's tough to deliver goods and services when there's nobody there to physically deliver those. And you were talking a little bit about commodities and those prices moving up. I'm, I'm sure the folks in Arkansas that are in the timber business love that, you know, now that we have a three or 400 price increase in that timber that they're cutting down. But for the rest of us, it's really posed a problem. I agree with you. I think about young families that are trying to buy a home right now or trying to build a home. And by the time the home is finished, a lot of those input costs have increased, and I think they're getting uh, phone calls similar to capital calls in our industry where they're requesting more money. That can be a, a tough pill to swallow. Something that's interesting to me is that we see these numbers now and kind of how the market's reacting. But a lot of our listeners have been seeing these prices increases for the, the last few months, and certainly wasn't a surprise to me or you. So Josh, these things are obviously impacting market performance, and we continue to see industrials and material companies do really well as they stand to benefit from these price increases in materials and their products and services. We see commodities doing well. We talked about lumber. That's just, just one commodity, but there's a few others that have done really well. We're also starting to see gold and silver catch up to the market. We monitor those daily, talking about those a lot as well over the past month, and we started to see them catch up gold as a traditional inflation hedge and and silver as well. Interesting enough, Josh, we do a little bit of work in the uh, physical gold and and silver space, and we've seen demand really pick up and the cost of buying gold and silver in those physical markets really increase as everyone sees inflation and rushes to buy physical gold and silver. Uh, And you're exactly right. In fact, Jack, I know we've been monitoring the flows in a lot of these ETFs, and it's amazing what we've seen in the commodity ETF space. And the flows into those assets have just been phenomenal in the increase just in the last six months. So there's definitely investor interest in those commodities. You were talking a little bit about the price disparity between the physical metals market and also, say, the uh, the GLD or the SLV ETFs. There's a big gap between what an investor has to pay for physical gold and silver and the markup that they're paying and the actual spot commodity price that you may see on some of the major financial news networks. That's something that our listeners should realize that when you go out to your favorite gold and silver dealer and you ask for you know, an ounce of gold, it's very possible that you're going to be paying a pretty significant markup right now just because of the demand on the street is just so high. And that's something that we've been watching very closely as well. So thanks for bringing that up, Jack. And with all this rotation in the market, again, we're just seeing lots of volatility as the market rotates between sectors, especially in the more speculative assets. I'd urge investors who are looking at their investments every day not to get too worried. If we see big tech sell off over a two to three day period, this volatility is normal right now. And it's something I bet we'll continue to see over the summer. Uh, Jack, that rotation, appreciate you bringing that up. I want you to talk a little bit about what you've seen in the trading room on uh, Bitcoin and some of the other cryptocurrencies. We've seen a lot of volatility there. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in the last month? Yeah, well, if we're gonna we're gonna talk about volatility, we can't we can't ignore Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and their reaction to the overall market. So we have seen Bitcoin over the last few weeks. It did actually drop fifty percent off its highs at one point pretty significant move in the market and some of the smaller cryptocurrencies, even sharper sell-offs than that. I know a lot of people do have investments in cryptocurrency and it's a growing market, so it's definitely something to watch. And Josh, the thing that I find interesting is during that crypto sell-off, we really saw an impact to the overall stock market as well. It's become such a big asset class, not only for retail investors, but even growing for institutional. You know, I think those sell-offs are really impacting the market. And when people see that, maybe they sell out and sell securities in the stock market as well. So I'd like to get your thoughts on, on how crypto is impacting the overall market. 
Oh, I, I think that's a great question, and it really highlights the symbiotic relationship between all of the major asset classes that investors are allocating money towards in this type of an environment. With inflation, I know our topic today is inflation, and we're going to jump into that, but with inflation expectations increasing, investors are really struggling and searching for any asset that they feel will maybe do a better job of keeping pace and protecting their purchasing power as we move through time and as the government decides to increase the money supply by leaps and bounds like it's doing in this current environment. I'm really interested in discussing inflation today and also highlighting how cryptocurrency or Bitcoin fits into that narrative. Well, that's all I had on the market side. So we want to move right into inflation. Yes, absolutely. Let's jump right in, Jack. Josh, as our listeners know by now, and as I mentioned earlier, we've been talking a lot about inflation pretty consistently on our program over the last year. And this topic has finally made it onto the mainstream media. We talked about the numbers earlier and what they're saying. A lot of our investors have seen this inflation over the last three, four months really creep into their personal lives. How important do you feel inflation has become for investors? Jack, what a great question. Inflation is one of those interesting topics because it's really not a concern for us until it becomes a concern for us. And let me let me step back a little bit and let's paint a picture that most of us have experienced at some point in our life, right? We're sitting down, we're talking with our grandparents, and they're telling us how cheap it was to go to the movies when they were a kid, right? Yeah, Josh, things seem to be uh, pretty cheap back in the day. Jack, that's exactly right. And we all heard about that, but it was a time in the past. And that's the way a lot of us look at inflation. Even when we talk about, you know, the Volcker period back in, in the 70s and 80s, we think about it as something from a history books. And a lot of us sit in class and when we're in college and we talk about in inflation and it's a data point on the chart. And it really doesn't impact our behavior from day to day until it becomes a problem until we expect it to become a problem. And let me give you a little bit of a different example. Let's say I'm a, I'm a young couple. I've just gotten married, and my wife and I are, are looking to build our first custom home. And we have a certain budget, and we've talked to the builder, and we've signed a contract. And, and that home's going to take somewhere between six and nine months to finish. It's reasonable to expect that with, let's say, the builder has a 20% profit margin on that home. Do you think it's reasonable to expect, Jack, that prices should be relatively stable during the six to nine months that I'm building my home, my first custom home? Yeah, and that short of a time period, I believe so. Yes, and that's what I'm talking about from a historical perspective, that the environment right now has really changed, Jack, because over the six to nine month time period that that young family is building a home, they're finishing that home or they're getting within, say, three or six months through the process. And the builders coming back to them saying that they've underpriced the home by sometimes 30, 40, 50, maybe even $100,000, depending on the size of the home. And that's impacting that family in a real way. It's also impacting them when they go to the grocery store, not individual items as much. This may not be as meaningful as an impact to a larger family, but let's say you have a few children and you're going to the grocery store and your bill three months ago was $250 and now it's $350 for that same basket of commodities. Those are real world, real dollar impacts that are impacting our investors, impacting our general listeners on a day to day basis. So when we go back and we think about inflation creeps up on you, we've talked about it being the, the thief in the night and coming when you're not looking. Inflation is always present, but it's the expectations that economists talk about. And that's the example of, of what they're referring to. Most of us as consumers look at inflation through the lens of history. We don't think about it as a day-to-day, real-world issue that we have to contend with when we go to the grocery store or when we buy a large asset. Once this begins to occur, inflation becomes important. And frankly, it's a concern, Jack, for the entire public, not just for our investors. 
Yeah, Josh, I, I think you're right. And I think our investors are seeing that inflation in a lot of different things, whether it's the grocery store, if they're building a house and many other sectors of the economy. So when it all kind of comes at once, that can be difficult for investors. It can be. And, and Jack, one thing that I forgot to mention, and we can talk about this in, in more detail if you'd like, is that we may see wages go up a little bit. And our listeners may be thinking, well, you know, uh, wages are going up and, and that's going to help that young family pay for that home. But when you think about nominal wages increasing by 2 or $3 an hour, which we've seen recently, and that home has gone up by 30%. We're really talking about real costs increasing by a factor of 10 beyond what wages are increasing. So this is a challenge that's impacting the public today and, and investors should definitely look at. Josh, we've actually seen the Fed chair refer to this current period of inflation as this transitory a bunch of different times to kind of explain what they're doing in the market and not raising interest rates and not tapering off their purchases. Do you think April's numbers are a sign of kind of times to come, or do you really think we're in a transitory economy? And can you explain a little bit to our listeners what this exactly means? Jack, that's a great question. Let's talk about what the word transitory means for those of our listeners that are not economists. Really, the word transitory is just a fancy word for temporary, Jack. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what Jerome Powell is talking about is he's giving some guidance to the reporters and the media and to those business owners and CEOs that are trying to make decisions and really concerned about whether or not this inflation is going to be a long-term problem for them. And he's communicating to them that he believes that this is temporary. Now, why would he believe this is temporary? Any ideas? Well, obviously, we talked about the fiscal stimulus and the money that's being pumped into the economy, but also the, the Federal Reserve has stepped in and started buying securities and, and providing a lot of liquidity to the market. So I would think those are two reasons that he said that. Absolutely. So it's been the response. And another thing that has just recently passed is the COVID issue that we've been dealing with, right? And so you talked about all these supply chain issues. You talked about all this additional stimulus. These are all inflationary measures. It's the Federal Reserve's communicated position to the public that a lot of these are temporary, that inflation will return back to normal at some point in time. It's an interesting position. We at our firm don't share that opinion. I believe a lot of these inflationary pressures, while they may not be permanent in their magnitude, I think they're going to stick around. And I think some of the price increases that we've seen are going to provide a new basis as we move forward. But I think that's a really good question, Jack. I think that that has been top of mind for a lot of our investors and listeners as of late. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the supply chain issues earlier, because I, I think you're right, that does qualify as temporary in some cases, but also there's some bigger trends as far as the fiscal stimulus and the money supply growing that you really can't get around and just continue to call temporary forever. Well, the supply chain issues, believe it or not, don't present as much of a challenge for me when I'm trying to work through the inflationary model and, and forecast. The, the lack of workers that you talked about to process orders and really the lack of general inventory. I don't know if you've been following this, Jack, as closely as I have, and we talk a lot about operational efficiency within the firm. I remember when we read that uh, as a team, we read that book, The Goal, and it was just, it was such an interesting read. But it really opened my eyes and got me to think about what's happening right now. A lot of the large firms are abandoning the just-in-time inventory process. Because from the beginning of COVID, you remember all the shipping problems that we saw with the major shipping companies coming across the pond and, and yeah. delivering goods and services, raw materials and components. I don't know if you recall, but at the very beginning of this, even before COVID started, General Motors and a lot of the large automakers were having problems just servicing vehicles because a lot of these supply chain challenges. Those items, I think, if I was sitting at the Fed in my nice office, nice plush office, and I was... <laughs> 
pontificating about what's going on and in the world and what I think is going to happen from a very academic perspective, I think I could easily point to the supply chain. And it does look very temporary. I think as, as we come back online and we get back to work and as we go back to that Six Sigma thought process and we get back to just-in-time inventory and trying to be as efficient as we can, I'm hoping that a lot of those pressures are more transitory in nature. Josh, one thing I want to follow up on is you mentioned our firm has a different view of inflation and what we're seeing right now. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and our view on the current inflationary environment? Yeah, thank you, Jack, for giving me a chance to to unpack that a little more. I don't believe that all the inflation we're seeing is transitory in nature for a number of reasons. First, the size and duration of the stimulus was really unprecedented, and it continues today. And unfortunately, now that I'm not going to say that we beat COVID-19, but definitely in a, in a much better spot moving forward. I think I read that over half the population has been vaccinated. And really, it's from our perspective today, I'm looking out the window and after, after a long period of rain and thunderstorms and, and dark clouds, it's, it's a sunny day. So as we're moving forward, I'm questioning what's the game plan? What's the end game for the stimulus? And it was just so much larger than expected and it continues today. And I'm, I'm hoping this doesn't become a pattern for the government to respond to every economic setback with a large measure of stimulus. I believe that uh, ultimately will lead to more inflation and, and unfortunately, as you talked about earlier, just provide a huge incentive for individuals not to work. And I think that disincentive to work is going to drive wages higher. And we talked a little bit about just that, that young couple that may not be able to afford a lot of those changes in price regarding their home. You know, the prior year, we talked a lot about the minimum wage in the media. And it was something that we saw that certain government officials were pushing to get that minimum wage up. And I think that part of that conversation that's missed that really applies now in this inflation discussion, Jack, is we're talking about nominal wages. If an, an inexperienced and an unskilled worker that's fresh out of high school is only making $8 an hour, and everybody's mad about that, right? They think that that person should be making more. Okay. So that person should be making more because they, they should be able to go out and buy more. So the, the answer from our firm would be for that individual to be able to gain productive skills, to be able to gain more education, and a capacity to go out and demand a higher wage for their skill set. The problem with forcing higher nominal wages, and what I think we're seeing now, is that, as, as you and I talked about, the real wages aren't necessarily increasing. And their ability to buy more goods and services is not necessarily increasing, especially with, with the housing costs we've seen recently. Jack, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and I think it's overlooked a lot when people are developing that policy and creating that policy is the the cost of all goods are, are most likely going to go up if the labor cost for producing a good is going up. And so that's why I don't believe, you know, this discussion started on transitory inflation. And that's why I don't believe that this is transitory in nature, because we're starting to see those wages increase, those nominal wages increase. And, and unfortunately, we're seeing the cost of those big ticket items like cars and homes and, and the things that, that are really a part of the American dream. We're seeing those things increase in cost dramatically. And if the objective is to encourage productivity, innovation, and really happiness and satisfaction of the workforce. We've got to get those real wages up. Real wages are what we need to be measuring, not nominal wages. The last uh, thing that I think really points to uh, more permanent inflation in certain pockets, Jack, is just the price of real estate in general. Real estate is an interesting asset class because it's very sticky and it moves up in lunges and, and then it kind of plateaus for all. In fact, we've talked about here with our private clients, we don't work in real estate. We're not real estate brokers, but we do follow the commercial, industrial and residential markets. And those prices have recently lunged forward. 
And Jack, they may soften a little bit when this is done, but at the end of the day, history suggests that they're not going to go back to where they were two years ago. And so that's the last point that I wanted to make, that I do believe the inflationary, a lot of the inflation that we've seen is more permanent and, and here to stay. So Josh, now that we've established our position is we think this is more permanent. Of course, there are some transitory elements, but overall, we, we do think it's a more permanent change in inflation. This is going to be a cost, significant cost to our listeners over time. How can our investors protect themselves against inflation? You mean besides firing the folks in Washington that continue to print money? <laughs> yeah. <I'd>... <laughs> uh, as consumers, we can obviously hold more inventory, right? You know, if we go to Costco and we see prices increasing by 30% a year, our natural response, and I think the, the consumer's natural response is going to be to hold more inventory of products and services that they use every day. And I think that's one of the biggest concerns economists and policymakers have about how the public responds to inflation is that uh, they will go and start to build up inventory. Really, I think something more practical for from an investment perspective is just to own assets that do well in periods of inflation. And that means assets with the possibility to appreciate. Jack, what is the worst asset to hold in inflationary times? Well, Josh, if you're holding a lot of cash and the, the value of the dollar is decreasing, that isn't necessarily a good thing. But also, you know, if we're in an environment with inflation and the Fed is forced to raise interest rates, then we would see the prices of bonds decrease as well. So those would be my two answers, cash and bonds. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So, uh, cash and low and long maturity, high quality fixed income securities are, are a little challenged during those inflationary times. So I think you're exactly right. So the point I was trying to make here is just as investors, we need to focus on assets that appreciate over time. And you and I have spent a little bit of time on today's program talking about real estate and how well it's done. The real estate asset is going to be a better hedge against inflation, a better protector of your assets during high inflationary times under certain circumstances. I would say assets that have productive uses, and don't forget, stocks do too. I mean, these are shares of real companies that are out there. I believe that those are some assets to consider in an inflationary environment. Well, Josh, we talked about stocks and bonds, but what about crypto? Do you think that's a good alternative to hold during times like this? Jack, I think that's an excellent question, especially with the volatility we've seen recently. So crypto's done really well during this inflationary period, or at least during this initial inflationary period, hasn't it? Yeah, Josh, it's done well over the last year since the pandemic started. I talked about its struggles earlier, but it's done well over the longer term, certainly. Jack, it's a real interesting topic, inflation and Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is very different than other currencies. And part of the reason is we talked a little bit about all the all the money printing that's going on with a cryptocurrency. And let's talk specifically about Bitcoin. It's kind of like real estate. We say they're not making any more of it. In Bitcoin's case, it actually is being mined at a slower and slower rate over time. And I believe there's a date that it actually, we will not be able to mine any more Bitcoin. But the point is, is there's a fixed amount. And in fact, based on you know, my research and you know, the information that I have, the quantity of Bitcoin may actually be decreasing over that period. I don't know if you read the story here in the local news about that poor chap that lost his key for his Bitcoin and was not able to access several million dollars of Bitcoin. But there's documentation that the actual number of Bitcoin is decreasing. So I think the core fundamental elements for that inflation to creep in on its own in a bottle, isolated, is very challenging. I just don't see that happening as, as a pure... I don't, I don't see pure inflationary pressures on that cryptocurrency going forward. I think that the growth that you've seen in the price has been driven by other market forces. Can we talk a little bit about those other market forces? Is it just pure speculation or do you think there's other things that are aiding that growth in the price of Bitcoin? 
boy, that is the that is the million or billion dollar question when it comes to Bitcoin, right? What's driving the price higher? So it's our firm's position and, and my position that it's being driven primarily by speculation. When we look at the asset class and and really what gives crypto its value, it really came to me when I tried to classify what Bitcoin was. And that just means based on currency, is it an investment? What is Bitcoin and what are these these cryptocurrencies? So you talked a little bit about inflation. So is is Bitcoin money? My answer to that would be no. It's it's not universally accepted as a medium of exchange. I think we talked about earlier that it's not a relatively stable store of value. And so it's very difficult for me to classify Bitcoin as money. In fact, I don't know if y'all read the the story, but I think it was back in 2010. I could be wrong, where there were actually pizzas purchased with Bitcoin. It was the first transaction with Bitcoin. But so much of the information with Bitcoin is so misleading. Those pizzas weren't purchased with Bitcoin. From what I understand, there was a gentleman in the UK that uh, ordered Papa John's for the person that wanted Bitcoin and then took the Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is not a medium of exchange for regular transactions. And, and so I had to rule out money. Then I looked at whether or not Bitcoin was an investment. And it doesn't really qualify as an investment either because there's no productive capability of Bitcoin at all. You know, even if you decide to call gold a an investment, you know, there's no productive capability. But gold is an input. Gold is a, a store of value. Silver is an industrial metal. You look at all these other commodities. And I know precious metals are behave a little differently. And, and we've got a whole podcast on that if you'd like to hear more. But Bitcoin doesn't have any productive capability at all. And some listening may be furious and, and argue with that. It, it's kind of like talking about the internet when it first came out. There was no real way to invest in the internet. You know, you invested companies that use the internet for productive capability. And, and I'm excited about the technology of blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies. I think it's going to be very exciting. And I think it's going to really be a revolution for how we transfer payments and other things. But when you talk about Bitcoin, the actual cryptocurrency, I think it's a real challenge to call it an investment. So to answer your question, I think that speculation would have to be my answer there. I think speculation's driven a majority of the price increases. Josh, one thing you said that really stuck out to me was the store of value aspect and how a lot of people are starting to relate gold and Bitcoin with each other and the fact that they're both stores of value. And like I said, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen Bitcoin 50% off its high and Meanwhile, what's a big move for silver in a single day? 1% maybe. So we don't really see the the big swings there. So I find it difficult to compare those two when we, we see such volatility in one and the other is relatively stable. It'll move up and down during longer periods. But I think that's interesting how people are comparing those two. No, I agree with you. Uh, you know, you'd mentioned silver. Silver is, is has been a medium of exchange for thousands of years. And the volatility is a little more than on silver than it is on gold. But you're exactly right. That store of value issue is is a key component for a definition of money. So we'll see where that goes. And and while Bitcoin is definitely forging a new frontier, and I'm excited to see what the technology will, will do, I, I don't see it as an investment. I, I see it as speculation. Joshua, I think our producer's looking at me over here. I think she has a quick question about Bitcoin. I do have a question. I've, I've been on my Venmo app uh, recently, and they're really pushing Bitcoin as something I can exchange with uh, my friends and my personal vendors, they give a very uh, small asterisk about how volatile it is and like, go ahead and dive in if you're ready. So I had a question about that. It's kind of being thrown in my face more recently, I've noticed. I completely agree. Like I said, uh, more as a joke at the beginning of the podcast, that the, it's everyone's favorite asset right now. We see 
professional players looking to take their salary in Bitcoin. We see a lot of people moving significant more money over to Bitcoin to invest in that. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this, Josh. So Morgan's question is one that I think a lot of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, probably have because you are seeing it. And it is, I wouldn't say it's ubiquitous, but it is becoming more commonplace these days. So I would have a follow-up question for you, Jack. Which cryptocurrency do I use? I mean, there's a limited number of, of Bitcoins. It's finite based on the algorithm and the blockchain technology. So which cryptocurrency do I use? I heard Facebook came out with theirs too, right? I, th I think that's a big question is which cryptocurrency do I use? Obviously, that question was meant to be rhetorical because Morgan's point is spot on. And if we have, let's call them users, not, not spenders. If you have users out there that are really weighing the trade-offs versus cash and Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's the sexy topic of the day. I mean, we're talking about it. It's something that everybody wants to own. You've seen the price increase dramatically. I will agree it's an asset, but I still come back to my argument for Morgan that Bitcoin is not a, a stable store of value in a medium of exchange. And I, I believe really when the rubber is going to hit the road here is when you have not professional athletes that have marginal excess income, but those of us who make a decision to get paid in Bitcoin when we know we have to pay our rent or our mortgage payment or buy tomatoes or coffee, it's not about the Starbucks cup that concerns me, you know, that they may eventually start accepting Bitcoin. It's that can we get our needs met? You know, remember in school, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, and I think even that theory has been abandoned now, but, you know, shelter, food, friendship, love, I, I, and I'm probably butchering it. But my point is, is when we make a decision to get paid, to take that paycheck in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, that's a big step. And it's very different from someone who's telling their employer at the NFL or somebody else, well, pay me my extra million dollars in Bitcoin because, you know, I want some media coverage now. I want to see the general public accept this as a currency. And I really believe the next step, Morgan, that has to happen is there's going to have to be some regulation, government approval, or some coordination or basket of goods, some agreement, reciprocity agreement between member countries to accept Bitcoin as a mainstream source or medium for a transfer of payments. And then you come back down to the point which which Jack and I just discussed, which is which one is the right one. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's a great point there. We really do need governments to start to embrace this technology for it to be used as payments. One of the main reasons it's actually sold off in the last couple of weeks is because the Chinese government has really been against the use of Bitcoin and trying to ban that in their country. So I think its long-term value is going to be heavily impacted on which governments actually embrace the technology and which don't. Isn't it ironic? And something else that, that Morgan uh, Morgan's question prompted was that the whole advantage of the blockchain technology and stacking these blocks together, which is really what it is, it's visible for everyone to see. It's not in the dark. It's not in secret. It's economic freedom at, it, at its most fundamental value. The, the challenge with it, no one controls it. You have to have your product key just to access it. So the challenge is it's in order for it to be regulated, some significant changes have to take place. And it's ironic that the whole purpose of Bitcoin and the whole value, I think, of the blockchain technology is that it's not regulated. And so what happens to the value of that underlying asset when it's now being regulated and it's now an accepted medium of exchange from everything to Starbucks to purchasing a home to your paycheck? And what about taxes? So we really go down a slippery slope there. And that goes back, and I didn't go into this earlier, but that goes back to why I had such a hard time classifying Bitcoin to begin with. 
and where this technology is. I think it's an exciting technology. I'm excited to see what comes from this in the years to come. But as far as its use as a, as a currency right now, I think it, it has an uphill climb. Jack, you know what's interesting? When Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the invisible man, as I, as I call him, I don't know what he's referred to, but that's what I call him. When that white paper came out in 2008, can, I don't know if y'all can believe it's been 13 years since the Bitcoin white paper came out. It's been a long time. And those pizzas were purchased, which I believe was in 2010. We didn't really, kind of like inflation, we didn't really think about what was going to happen in the future. We didn't think about the limited quantity of the Bitcoins that were going to be available. And I think that's part of what you've seen is the price increase, right? They're not making any more of it. In fact, it's it's getting less and less and less and less. And, and we'll reach a point to where there's no Bitcoin being mined. And I think that's out in 2030 or 2040. But But my point is, it wasn't expected when we started. It has been an interesting phenomenon based on a new, exciting technology. But at the end of the day, it comes down to it being a practical medium exchange to be a currency. And in order to be an investment, we, in the most innovative country in the world, have to figure out how to add productive capability to that blockchain and to that technology. So that's what I'm excited about, that new frontier. And and I'm excited to see what we can do with uh, blockchain technology moving forward. Josh, that was a great conversation on crypto. I'm glad we got to cover that. But I have to bring us back to our original topic today, and that's inflation. What are we doing in the trading room to combat inflation and protect our clients? Jack, that's the question, isn't it? What do we do now? Inflation is clearly upon us. But the great thing about us here at the Rudd Company is we have been positioning ourselves for an environment like this for some time. And we've communicated some of the steps that we've taken to work towards a solution to dealing with this inflationary time. But really, we've we've talked about most of them. The assets that we believe are going to perform well in this type of an environment, we didn't just buy them. We already hold them. And a lot of the strategies that we've been implementing here recently have more to do with the sustained low interest rate environment than they do trying to catch up to the inflationary trade, which I think you're seeing happen on the street right now. You know, you talked about the rotation to value and industrials and materials. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say we were already there. So going forward, I'd ask our clients to please reach out if they have any questions. Well, Jack, what a great discussion today. Thank you for all that insight. And thank you to all of our listeners for taking the time to listen today. As always, if you enjoyed this program, please subscribe to the Rudd Commentary anywhere you get your podcast. So basically your preferred podcast platform, and you will never miss an episode. Also, if you know other investors that would enjoy this program, please share the Rudd Commentary podcast through email or on social media. We also like feedback on our program and ideas for future topics. If you have the time, we'd appreciate hearing from you. All of us here at The Red Company would like to thank you, our investors and clients, for your trust. Thank you for allowing us to be your partner in your long-term financial journey. We take this role very seriously. Thank you very much for listening today. This is The Red Commentary. I'm your host, Josh Rudd. And from all of us here at The Red Company, invest long and prosper. This commentary is distributed for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Nothing herein constitutes any offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy any security. All investment strategies and investments involve risk of loss, including the possible loss of principal invested, and nothing herein should be construed as a guarantee of any specific outcome or profit. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any opinions expressed by employees of the Rudd Company are the Rudd Company's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliates. The opinions expressed by guest speakers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Rudd Company or any affiliates. 
Guest appearances on this program does not imply the Rudd Company's endorsement of any entity, person, product, service, or investment. All opinions are current and only as of the date of recording and are subject to change without notice.